He suck his finger in the end of your what? Howdy, everyone. Pull up a chair, kick up your boots, and take a sip on a nice cold saspa suspect. It's Support Your Local Podcast, the show where we take a look at the 1969 Western comedy classic, Support Your Local Sheriff, one chapter at a time. I'm your host, Robert Smith, coming to you from beautiful Tombstone. Yes, that one. Today we are going to take a look at Chapter 11, A Busted Bust. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to kind of give you a feel for the lay of the land in regards to not just the setting of the movie and and time frame, but also the time frame that the movie was released in, in a segment that I like to call, It Came in 69. That gun had gone off and it blowed right up in my face. It wouldn't have done my finger a hell of a lot of good either, would it? In 1869, on November 4th, my birthday, mark your calendars, I expect a card. The, the first issue of the scientific journal Nature is published in London. It is edited by Norman Lockyer. The first game of American football between two American colleges is played. This is between Rutgers and Princeton. Uh, Rutgers defeats Princeton 6-4 in a forerunner of American football and college football. In Egypt, the Suez Canal linking the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea is inaugurated in an elaborate ceremony. The Hudson's Bay Company surrenders its claim to Rupert's Land in Canada under its letters patent uh, back to the British Crown. In Dumberden, Scotland, the clipper ship Cuddy Sark is launched. This is one of the last clippers built and the only one to survive in the United Kingdom. Fast forward 100 years to 1969, November 3rd, day before my birthday. Mark your calendars, I expect a card. In Cairo, the Arab League makes a deal that gives the PLO in Lebanon refugee camps freedom from government interferences as they plan to recruit and train fighters for their army. Alcatraz Island is occupied by a group of American Indians. The events go on to inspire Troy R. Johnson to chronicle the story. Regular color television broadcasts begin on BBC One and ITV. 250,000 protesters stage a peaceful demonstration against the Vietnam War in Washington, D.C. Football great Pele scores his 1,000th goal. That's soccer for you uh, Americans out there. 80 Native American college students seize Alcatraz Island, the name of Indians of all tribes, explaining why the island should become an Indian reservation. The My Lai Massacre, the mass murder of unarmed South Vietnamese civilians at the hands of U.S. troops, is investigated. The Let It Bleed album, with the famous cake made by Delia Smith, is released by the English rock band The Rolling Stones. Sesame Street debuts on the National Education Television, which is the precursor to the PBS, the Public Broadcasting Service. And on August 21st, Donald and Doris Fisher open the first Gap store in San Francisco. This has been... It came in 69. Wow! So we start our chapter, A Busted Bust, with the the Danbys sitting at a table in the saloon. They're having a rough enough day that they tell the bartender to leave the bottle, uh, which, boop, 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 I guess could be a trope in in the westerns. 
Um, when somebody's down on their luck, they, they tell you to leave the ball. You know, that's a sign of them having, uh, having some issues. Uh, obviously, they are not necessarily licking their wounds because they weren't involved, uh, but they had a pretty rough day losing three gunfighters, two of them dead, and one of them, now that I think about it, maybe he was the former sheriff that got ran off because uh, he wasn't able to get into the gunfight. He was actually scared off with a couple stones, but oh well. We find that Paul has been pushed uh, a little too far with the sheriff, and it's time for some drastic measures. The red-bearded son, Gene Evans, asked Paul if he'd been touching up his hair again, as it looks better in spots. And this is just a continuation of him saying the worst things that he could to put his foot in his mouth. But uh, while he asked Paul that, and as Paul apparently uh, definitely justifiably gets offended, I, I wondered, you know, this is based in 1860s ballpark, you know, don't have an exact date, but it, it works for that skit that I do. Uh, I, I wondered, when exactly was hair coloring a thing? So I took a look at a little bit uh, look at uh, the history of hair coloring. Obviously, it's been done throughout history uh, to some degrees. Uh, you know, makeup goes back uh, even to before America. But uh, one of the things that jumped out at me when I was searching for it is in the 1800s, uh, English chemist William Henry Perkin made a accidental discovery that changed hair dye. And he was trying to find a cure for malaria and accidentally uh, created the first, synthesi uh, the first synthesized dye in 1863. Um, the color was mauve, and it's called mauvine. Uh, but I found that interesting that I'm not a scientist, I'm not a chemist, uh, but sometimes when you hear the, the, the origins of some of these inventions, you wonder how exactly did you stumble upon something, and not only that, but how did you find out that that is what it would be good for? So if I'm a scientist looking for a cure for malaria, how do I accidentally create dye? Again, not a chemist. But also, how do I look at that and go, I can color hair with that. So just a, a fun little fact. And with it being discovered in 1863, that's right around the time frame that we're looking at for this movie. So yes, uh, maybe it has swept the world as a, a beauty and, and cosmetic product uh, in the next six years. I don't know if it had made its way out to Calendar, Colorado by that part, excuse me, Calendar, wherever this territory is. We'll find out about Colorado later. But uh, anyways, so Paul has a plan, and we quickly fade to nighttime and outside the prison cell windows. Paul has already secured several ropes onto the bars of the cell window, and whoop, 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 our official first uh, Western trope alert, jailbreaks. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that a movie has a, a jailbreak involved. So obviously Rio Bravo, El Dorado, um, 20 ones uh, off the top of my head where the, the main drive of the movie is somebody does something bad, the sheriff arrests them, and now it's up to his family or his cohorts or, or whatever to get them out of jail. And I wonder how often that actually happens. Uh, the, the Fistful of Dollars um, trilogy that there's several jailbreaks just to, just in that usually involving dynamite, but uh, 
Joe uh, attempts to say something to them and he stops himself because he knows how temperamental Paul can be. And so he decides against it. Um, Paul jumps on his horse and alongside the two brothers, also on their horses, they spur the horses into action and they try to pull the bars out of the window. So the horses run off and in a, a nice bit of comedy, the saddles slide right off the horse with the rider still in them. It's a, a great stunt fall. As the horses are running off the screen, the riders plummet to the ground. Um, you can obviously tell that they sped up the footage, but still a pretty good stunt uh, and one that you can tell somebody did. So again, shout out to the stuntmen uh, for doing something dangerous. I mean, the horse, you're falling a, a good five, six feet. That's a good way to, to bust a leg or something else. Um, the, the stuntman for Walter Brennan, spoiler alert, you know, the 60-some-year-old Walter Brennan did not do his own stunt on that. He, he loses his hat in the process, and if you're looking for it and, and you have a keen eye, uh, you can definitely tell that that is not Walter Brennan in the, in the stunt. Not that you would expect it to be, um, but usually stunt people are good at using hats or their arms or whatever to hide their face. Um, this one, he, he loses his hat in the process, so he has nothing to really cover himself with. Uh, so no fault to the stuntman, but yeah, I, I was a little saddened to see that that was not, in fact, Stumpy uh, falling off his horse, but oh well. Joe tells his family that he knew it wouldn't work because the, the bars were set in a little too well, and when he's questioned about it, Joe proudly informs Paul that he was the one that helped set the bars in. I, I wonder as I've watched this, is it true? I mean, I know it's true that Joe helped. We saw him holding the mortar plate earlier. Is it true that that's why it didn't work? I, I mean, I'm not questioning the, the fine work that the mason did. You can see looking at the window and, and such that the, the brickwork looks very, very nice. Um, um, shout out to my grandpa. Uh, he, was a, he was a bricklayer. Um, my, my question is, is there a scenario where three horses and some rope would be able to completely pull iron bars out of bricks like that? Because usually in the Westerns, you see a lot of explosives used to, to spring people from jail. Uh, I mentioned earlier, namely the, the, the Man With No Name trilogy. There's one or two instances of, of using explosives. So I know obviously that horses outside of a train perhaps are the only form of work power that they, they may have in this time frame. However, I wonder if three horses running from a dead stop would be able to generate enough force to actually get that done. I do know, however, that given the fact that they, that they want to do this stunt gag, they had to have had the saddles not attached to the horses. So if you watch, they slide completely off the back of the horse in in reality, the, the saddle should have had a strap around the belly of the horse to keep the saddle attached. I know that probably has a name. I'm not a cowboy. I'm not a horse person. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. To do this gag, they couldn't have that there because otherwise they would have, uh, I mean, possibly maimed the horse or the saddle would have got stopped once the, the strap got back to the, the horse's back legs and just an ugly, ugly situation. So by tying the rope to their saddle horns rather, rather than the horses themselves, it was a doomed venture from the start. 
And I, I realize it's for the gag, but just a, a little bit of, of reality there. Paul sends off the, the two brothers to their uncle's ranches to bring backup, anybody that they can think of. Um, it's officially... It's officially getting getting serious now. We're we're going to have uh, we're going to have some good old fashioned Western uh, dust up here. Paul scolds Joe for helping keep himself in jail, and when he wonders if Joe would help them hang himself too, Joe doesn't think that they are actually going to hang them. They he, they may joke about it, but he he doesn't feel that they they really will. So, gotta question the optimism of Joe. Perhaps he's been um, mentally broken down by the sheriff enough that he's he's finally kind of loopy. Um, but I wouldn't put money on the fact that they're not going to go through with it. Jake comes from around the jail uh, with his shotgun in hand to see what all the commotion was. And given the layout of the jail, if Jake was inside when all this happened, presumably it's nighttime, this is his shift, he didn't hear the talking between the Danbys beforehand, question mark. Um, I mean, if you look at this, this isn't a modern window. The, the window is open uh, not and not open like it was before. I mean, obviously the bars are there right now. I mean, open as in there's no glass. There's no uh, barrier in, in the window. All it is is it's open air with the bars. And given the layout that we know of the jail... If he was sitting in there, even with the door closed, these guys were loud enough that you would think that he would have heard a lot of commotion before we even got to the commotion of the horses running off. But alas. So anyways, Paul refuses to be chastised by Jake. So he takes his saddle and he leaves. And Jake asked Joe if they were trying to break him out. And keep in mind, there's still ropes tied to the bars of the window. In fact, he actually touches one. And Joe affirms that, yes, that's, that's what they were doing. He then delivers another of the top five jokes in the movie, one of my favorites, definitely, stating that Paul has a heart as big as the outdoors, but doesn't have a single brain in his head. And we close this chapter with Jake trying to contemplate the deepness of the quote and whatever that means coming from a, a guy like Joe. Uh, now is a good time before we close to take a good look at one of the movers and shakers of this this film, uh, direct uh, specifically uh, the one that's responsible for this film. Uh, let's take a look at director Burt Kennedy in a segment that I like to call Remember the Name. That's about all I'm going to do the rest of my life is go around remembering your name. And welcome back to Remember the Name, the segment of the show where we take a bit of a deeper dive into one of the cast of characters or the creators of the movie to get a better feel for where they were and what they brought to the table in regards to this movie. Uh, today we're going to look at the director, Mr. Burt Kennedy. Born in September of 1922, he left us in February of 2001. Known as a director and writer predominantly, he got his start in the career of show business. Uh, early on, at the age of four, um, he joined the act in vaudeville of his parents, the Dancing Kennedys. He would, after graduating high school in 1941, he went into the army where he did see uh, action in World War II. He was a member of the 1st Cavalry Division during the liberation of the Philippines, and he did receive a Silver Star, a Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, 
with oak leaf clusters. So he is a decorated war veteran, um, something that you'll see with a lot of these movie stars and actors and, and producers and directors that were around during World War II. This was something that really everybody was involved in. So uh, definitely a, a pattern that you're going to see as we go through some of these guys. Uh, he specialized in Westerns, as we said before. Something I, f I found interesting was uh, looking at his IMDb and Wikipedia. Uh, he was a writer and he began to specialize in Westerns partly because somebody gave him the advice of why would you compete with all these big writers when there are hardly any good Western writers as such? And with the, the competition being easier that way, if he writes a good Western, he's going to go a lot further, a lot faster. So interesting take since so much of Hollywood and TV was wrapped around the Westerns during this time frame to have somebody say that, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of great Western writers is it was something that just kind of kind of piqued my interest. He would do quite a few movies as a writer for director Bud Boddicker and Randolph Scott, a famous Western actor, of course. He switched quickly over into directing. Uh, he did episode TV like Lawman, Virginia, Combat. Uh, he did a Western comedy, Mail Order Bride, and then another comedy Western, The Rounders, in 1965 with Glenn Ford and Henry Fonda. Um, so starting to get his roots into the comedy Western uh, directorial side of things. The Rounders, of course, become a TV series. And, and then with the movie, uh, we'll see quite a few of the same behind the scenes people, cinematographer, things like that. Uh, where Burt Kennedy has his group of people that he's going to kind of stick with, um, not just with this movie, but further on into the Support Your Local Gunfighter and others along the way. Uh, Kennedy would go on after this to direct uh, Robert Mitchum and Young Billy Young, The Good Guys and the Bad Guys, and then directed Frank Sinatra in another comedy western, Dirty Dingus McGee, a name that you're going to hear off and on during these deep dives. He would move on into more TV affairs, doing episodic TV like The Wild Wild West Revisited and More Wild Wild West. Uh, he did some Louis L'Amour stuff with Down the Lawn Hills, The Alamo, 13 Days to Glory, Once Upon a Texas Train, and Big Bad John. His final credit um, definitely kind of cements his directorial style and his career uh much like the cinema photographer uh going out on a bad note his last directorial credit is 1991's hulk hogan vehicle suburban commando and uh knowing me you know that's that, that was a great little easter egg for me to see um growing up in the of hulkamania and being a big fan of Suburban Commando, uh, I had actually even kind of flirted around with wanting to do Suburban Commando as, as one of the movies to do as a podcast. Um, but to see that somebody with the credentials that Burt Candy has and the stuff that he's done with the people he's done, uh, seeing that his final credit was Hulk Hogan's Suburban Commando kind of made me chuckle, but also at the same time made me a little bit sad that uh, the remaining 10 years of Mr. Candy's life, uh, he has to go down as the director of Suburban Commando. Uh, but that has been uh, this episode uh, featuring Mr. Burt Candy, uh, the director of this movie and the, uh, the so-called sequel going forward with Gunfighter. Uh, but this has been 
remember the name. You tell him I remember his name. And we're back. So we close our scene and we are left to question if attempted jailbreaking is not a crime um, because Jake could have obviously arrested Paul Danby. Maybe not the brothers. Maybe they were too far gone uh, to their uncle's ranches by then. But I wonder why they wouldn't put Paul Danby in there as well. There's another cell. There's bars now. Um, it maybe would have made things a little bit easier. But that's not how the script goes. That's not how the movie goes. We'll have to see if that comes back to bite them in the butt. But until then, uh, when we return for Chapter 12, Mature Cowardice, uh, this has been Chapter 11, Busted Bust. Uh, please, 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 if you haven't already, check us out on social media. We are at Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all at Support Your Local Podcast. Uh, we can be reached uh, at uh, SUP, Your Local Podcast. That's S-U-P-P, Your Local Podcast at gmail.com. I welcome all your questions, comments, concerns, feedback. Uh, if you're looking for this podcast, if you happen to stumble upon this episode, I'm sorry that you had to start so late. Uh, please go back and check out the rest of them. Uh, you can find us easy at supportyourlocalpodcast.com or wherever your favorite podcatcher may be. So for Robert's recommendations this week, uh, I, I drifted off of my Movies by Minutes uh, path to get a, a wrestling podcast in there uh, last week by recommending the, the Jim Cornette experience. Uh, going to go back to my, my Movies by Minutes brethren. If you have not already checked out uh, the ones I said previously, uh, definitely check out the Indiana Jones Minute. Uh, these guys are, are um, going over all of the Indiana Jones films. They've already covered uh, Raiders, uh, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade. Uh, they unfortunately uh, ran into Crystal Skull pretty much right smack in the, the middle of COVID and everything else. So they have been doing easily the worst Indiana Jones film for about four years now. Uh, I, I feel for them. I'm sorry for them. Uh, it had to have been a slog, but uh, it's still very entertaining, very insightful. Uh, it's a very good podcast. Definitely go back, check out their back catalog, subscribe to them. Uh, but the Robert's recommendation for the week uh, is the Indiana Jones Minute. You can find it and all of the Movies by Minutes movies at moviesbyminutes.com. I guarantee you, if you have a favorite movie, there's probably been a podcast done on it. Uh, so go check that out. If it hasn't, make one. Uh, do what I did. You know, get get into this genre. It is... Um, it's not as hard as it seems. Uh, it, it can be daunting. I was scared to kind of get this started, but now that I've done this for a little bit, uh, definitely some fun to be had out here. So, uh, all right, folks, I'm going to let you go. Until then, always remember, uh, please, please, please support your local podcast. He you suck his finger in the end of your what?